All right. Well, it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you this morning. And as always, if, if you don't know me, uh, my name is James. I serve as one of the pastors here at Freedom Village. Um, if you don't know, we've been working through the Gospel of John, uh, one of the four Gospels in the New Testament um, over this last uh, season together. It's been over a year in this Gospel now. And, and you know, we just love uh, to work right through books of the Bible here at FEC. It's what we do. Uh, just take them verse by verse, uh, trusting uh, that the Lord will always speak to us. Amen? And that's certainly my expectation for us today as we find ourselves in one of the most beloved texts in the whole Bible. Uh, today we are beginning uh, in John 14. It's a popular text. It's one that a lot of us, I'm sure, in the room have heard before. But it's a text. It's a text that I think very few of us actually understand. In fact, um, I didn't really get, get it until this past year, and even more fully this past week, what John is actually writing here. And so it's my prayer today that the Holy Spirit would give us clarity, uh, that we would truly hear these powerful words from Jesus, and that from our hearing, we would live transformed lives here on earth. All right? Now, uh, we're about to jump in, but before I do, let me just start with this, okay? I'm going to start here. Um, in our world, in our world today, um, there are a lot of thoughts, concepts, ideas about heaven, uh, what it is, um, what it's going to look like, um, even within the Christian world. And if I may be so bold with you this morning, and I'm going to be bold today, um, the majority of those thoughts and ideas are wrong. And I say that humbly because I was once there too, um, even while being a pastor. I think my concept or an idea uh, was wrong. You see, in the modern evangelical church, Christian world, We've all, most of us, have grown up believing and hearing in our churches that someday, if you believe in Jesus, then you will zap away, leave this earth, and go up into this final resting place in the sky. And that idea impacts how we view Jesus and how we view the gospel. Right? What I mean by that is that with that view of heaven, uh, we tend to see Jesus' main reason even for coming to the earth, becoming a man, uh, was to save us from this material world that we're living in and to take us to this non-material heaven. We see that as salvation, that Jesus came to this earth, he lived and he died for us so that we could, quote-unquote, go up to heaven, Right? You've heard that before. Many of us believe that here in the room, I'm sure. But listen, hear me, hear me now, okay? Because some of you are like, is this heresy? Careful, I'm going to be careful. Hear me. Never once in the Bible, not once in the scriptures, will you find the phrase, go to heaven, used. When it talks about what happens when you die. Never. Um, it's just not there. There is no concept in the scriptures of us going up to live in the big mansions in the sky. You, you can't find it. Rather, what we see about heaven all throughout the scriptures is that heaven is actually, it's not somewhere that we go, but it's better defined as God's dwelling. Okay? It's the easiest way to define what is heaven. It's God's dwelling. It's where God is. It's where he resides. Better, it's his presence. That is heaven. It's God's presence. But because that doesn't tend to be our view, because that's not how most of us have been taught, when we come to the Gospel of John, and particularly here today in John 14, we tend to read this false idea into the text. We take Jesus' words to be and mean something that he never actually said and he never actually intended to say. And so I just need to say up front today that for most of us here, 
Christians even in the room, today is going to be surprising. (laughs) It's going to be surprising. But I believe once we fully understand what Jesus says here, it'll not just be a wow moment for us. And you will leave here probably saying, wow, (laughs) I'm sure. But it'll also be a moment that will impact the way that you see this life for the rest of your life. I mean that wholeheartedly. You will see this life and the rest of your life totally different if you get this today. You picked a good Sunday to be here. So let's open up our passage today. I'll remind you that here in John chapter 14, uh, we are just hours away from the cross now, hours away from Jesus' death. He's about to go to the cross. Jesus is in this upper room at the farewell discourse, is what it's called. He's having a conversation with his disciples over this meal, this Passover meal. Judas has left the table uh, to go and betray Jesus. Uh, Jesus has told his followers that he is leaving. And Peter uh, has just been told by Jesus that he is going to deny Jesus. Pretty harsh words. And then at that, right after Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me, Jesus says these words of comfort to the room. Much needed words of comfort to the room. Look at, again at, with me at verse one. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So what we see here at the, at the start of chapter 14 is Jesus encouraging his followers, actually, right off the bat, he's encouraging them to have peace. And he'll actually say this at the, at the end of chapter 16 as well, which tells us that the discussion that we're entering into today is framed by this idea that we can all have peace, uh, or real peace. Or you might say that this whole section between John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 is all about how to not have a troubled heart. This is Jesus' concern. He doesn't want us to have troubled hearts. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe me. Trust me. These are commands, by the way. Do not let your hearts be anxious. Trust me. Believe me. They're commands. And you know, it's it's a really interesting request by Jesus here, particularly in the moment that we find ourselves in, in this story, because let's again consider the context of what's happening, right? See, Jesus is saying these words when he himself is within hours of his own death, a death that he is aware of, a death that is, like, planned. He, he, he's aware of what's coming. So, and as I was studying the text, I just thought to myself, you know, isn't Jesus the one who's in really need of some words of comfort in this moment? Like, hey, it's going to be okay, Right? It's going to be hard, but you're going to make it right through. Like, it's going to be worth it in the end. And yet, it's Jesus here, the one who's about to go to the cross, suffer this excruciating death, pay the penalty for our sins, who is still not thinking about himself, but thinking of his disciples. It's Jesus providing comfort to them. And you know, this tells us so much about our Lord, doesn't it? That even all the way to his death, he has others on his mind. A lot we can learn from that. And it's worth it it to ask ourselves this question as well. Why even are their hearts troubled? Why, Why now? Why would Jesus say these words now? Well, again, it's because Jesus has just told them previous to this, in John chapter 13, that he's leaving. Right? I'm about to leave you guys. And remember, these guys have been with Jesus the last three years. They've done everything together. Like, literally everything together. They have accepted him. They have chosen to follow him. They believe in him. But now he said, it's my time to go. It's my time to leave. And let's remember on top of that, what I just mentioned a few minutes ago, is that Jesus, right, literally right before this, Jesus has just said to Peter, hey, by the way, Peter, um, I know like, you think you're like the whole leader of this crew. You're going to deny me. You're going to turn your back on me. 
And so we can only imagine being there in the room with the 11 plus Jesus, because Judas is not there, and trying to imagine, like, what would have been on their minds? They've just been told that their leader is about to leave, and kind of the leader amongst the guys, he's going to turn his back on their, their leader. What's about to happen to Peter? I'm sure they're wondering. What's going to happen to Jesus? Right? There's a lot of uncertainty in the room. There's a lot of un- a reasons for fear. A lot of concern for the future. This is an emotional moment that we've entered ourselves in. It's a heavy-hearted scene. And to some extent, I think we can all probably relate to this, can't we? We've all experienced levels of heaviness in our lives. uh, Levels of being troubled. Certainly not the exact reason these disciples are troubled. But we live in a world that is so filled with trouble. So filled with trouble. I love what Job says in his book. If you read uh, the book of the Bible in the Old Testament, oldest book in the Old Testament, actually, Job. Job says this. It's a really good summary about life. I love it. It's so pointed. Job says this. Anyone born of a woman, by the way, that's everyone. Don't, let, don't listen to what society tells you. Okay, We're all born of a woman. Anyone born of a woman, he says, is short of days, and full of trouble. Our time here on earth, he says, it is short. And our time here on earth has a lot of challenges, period. It's all you need to know about life. It's short, it's hard. <laughs> a lot of struggles. Can you resonate with that? And listen, listen, it's, it's not only as followers of Jesus. It's not only that we face trouble when we go the wrong way. When we go down the wrong path. Right? There are also times, we know this, there are also times that we have trouble when we obey God, actually, when we're following him. Paul wrote, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God so we can expect trouble. The question for us then, knowing that we're all struggle, knowing that we're all going to have reasons for, for, for anxiousness in our, in our moments of despair, Knowing that life is full of trouble, the question for us is, what do we do when our hearts become troubled then? Well, Jesus says, here's the answer. Stop. Believe in the Father. Believe in me. Rest in me. Stop looking at your circumstance. Stop looking at yourself. Look at me. This is the only real path to peace. It's the only hope that we have for, it's the only answer we have for true hope. And let's understand this as well about about this idea of believe in the Father, believe in me, because that has some impact here. Let's understand that the disciples, being good Jews, could believe in the God who acted in the past. The Father who had been faithful uh, through many generations, right? Their, Their forefathers, But now Jesus is being explicit. Now he's saying, he's teaching them actually, yes, believe in the Father, but in addition to that, right before I go, you have to understand, if you don't want your hearts to be troubled, it's not just believe in the Father. You also have to believe in the one who is standing right in front of you. You have to trust me, he says, as God. Trust Jesus as God. And so, I'll simplify it like this. What is Jesus' remedy, remedy for a troubled heart? What is Jesus' cure for the troubled heart today? I wish it was more complicated than this, but it's not. The cure is Jesus himself. He's the remedy for our troubled hearts. It's really that simple. Trust in the living Christ. Trust in the saving Christ, he says. Trust in the words and the works of Jesus. That's the idea here. And so... With that now in mind, that's how he sort of sets the table of this farewell discourse. We can now turn to the rest of the passage. And as we do that, we're going to see two major themes, two major threads in this section of Scripture, or two main reasons why we don't need to have troubled hearts. And so I'm going to say it like this. Our hearts don't need to be troubled, number one, because there's a promise of his presence, And then we'll get to number two here in a little while. 
Number two, that there is a path to his presence, which will be on the screen later, okay? Our hearts don't need to be troubled today. Why, you ask the question. Well, number one, there's a promise. There's a promise of his presence. So first, let's get into that promise. In verses two through three, Jesus says this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So I'll just say up front that what we're ultimately seeing in these verses is that the disciples' hearts, again, should not be troubled. Why? Well, ultimately, it's because Jesus' departure, we're seeing here, is actually planned and it is, pers- uh, it is purposeful. Right? This is all part of his plan, that it's actually for their good, we're going to find out. It's for their benefit, we're going to learn later in John 14, John chapter 15. It's better that he go because the Spirit is coming to indwell in them. You see, Jesus is about to go do something incredible. He's about to go do something that he and he alone can do. But this here now, this is where the confusion sets in. Okay? Because most people believe, again, even in our Christian world, they believe and are taught that the incredible thing that Jesus is about to do is to go and prepare a place in heaven for his disciples. That in a sense, Jesus is going away to do this construction project in the sky to prepare heaven for us to join him. And if you read these verses here from the lens of how most of us are taught to think about heaven, that makes total sense. That's how you probably read the text. It's how I read the text. You'd understand Jesus here saying, hey guys, here, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. Why? Because right in a few minutes, I'm about to go to heaven now to prepare these rooms, these houses for you. And then we debate the Greek. Did he mean apartment, duplex, or mansion? I'm serious. Look at the commentaries. This is the debate. And then he says, and when I come back after, you know, the hammer and nails is done, I'm going to bring you to heaven to those rooms, right? Isn't that how we typically understand this passage? But hear me now. Listen, that actually doesn't make any sense in the context of John's gospel. If you read it in isolation, that makes sense but not in the Gospel of John. And it actually doesn't make sense if you know the rest of the Scriptures. So let me explain. You really need to follow me here. Otherwise, you're going to leave here with your hearts troubled. Okay? God, please, I'm going to even say, please give us ears to hear and listen to understand. Okay? So I already said this. But typically, when we, when we talk about and think about heaven, we, we talk about this idea of going up to heaven, right? Going up to heaven. And, and we place a lot of hope in that idea. But when you read the story of the Bible, what you see right from the very beginning is that what the Bible, what the scriptures are actually all about is the union of heaven and earth. And so God creates the earth, we're told in Genesis 1. He creates this this garden. But what's significant about it? What's significant about that is that God himself is there, right? He is in the garden. There is this union, therefore, of heaven and earth. In the garden, it is what? It is God with man. Heaven intersecting with earth. But of course, we know that that union is what? It is severed and broken because of our sin. And so what happens? God sets out this plan. He has this plan to restore that. To do what? To bring heaven and earth back together once again. This is the whole narrative of the scriptures from beginning and end. 
This is the story of the Bible, the entire story. Do you get that? Do you understand? So, so, so in the beginning, heaven and earth, if you will, imagine two circles. Right? I'm going to steal this from Tim Mackey if you read the Bible Project or listen. Two circles, right? Two circles. Those, that one heaven, earth, those two circles in the beginning are completely overlapping. It was a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly. God's dwelling. There was no separation at all. But sin, our sin, drove those two spaces apart, right? We wanted what? We wanted, ultimately, we didn't want that intersection. We wanted our our own world, right? We wanted our own way. And so what we see happen is, if you will, these, let's call them two realms of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth separate, if you will, into these two realms. And that is signified by what? Not locations. What's, what's it signified by? It's signified by us being driven away from God's presence. He says, you can no longer be in my presence in the garden. It's not about being in the garden with good fruit. It's about being with God. That's the point. But he says, you can know because you are sinful and I am not, you cannot be in my presence. So we're driven out. And so now we have two realms, heaven and earth is what we call them. But again, once we are then removed from God's presence, what happens? God in his grace does two incredible things. Okay? First, he promises, once again, the restoration of those two spaces, heaven and earth. They will one day collide again, intersect again, overlapped again perfectly. But then listen, okay, this is, this is important, okay? But then, second, he makes it so that these, these two spaces, heaven and earth, at times and in very specific ways, begin to overlap, okay? Not fully, but partially. So for example, like, what are you talking about? All right, let me tell you, okay? For example, we get the temple, okay? And what happens? By going to the temple, what are we seeing happen there in the temple? We're seeing heaven and earth partially overlap. Why? Why? Why do I say heaven and earth intersect or overlap in the temple or even in the tabernacle? Why? Because God's presence was literally there. His presence on earth. It was a place where you could go to literally be with God. He physically dwelt there, okay? And of course, that was all well and good for the Israelites. It worked out really well for God's people. They could all experience this, right? But what about the rest of the world? What about the rest of the earth, if you will? Because again, this isn't about Israel, ultimately, and God uniting, This is about heaven and all of earth uniting, intersecting. And that's where we come to Jesus, right? This is the significance of Jesus. And what we learn in in John's gospel is what? Is that God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. And what are we told in John 1? He came and did what? Dwelt among us. And by the way, and I told you this back in John 1 a year ago. You have to go back and listen to it. Now it makes a lot of sense because that phrase, dwell among us, is very significant. Because what it literally means is that Jesus came and set up a tabernacle among us. It literally means that Jesus tabernacled among us. Very significant language. Okay, that's John 1. And then in John 2, follow me, Jesus tells the religious leaders, he says what to them? Tear down this, he's in the temple. He says, tear down this temple, destroy it, and what's going to happen? I will lift it up in three days. They all look around. Who is this man who's going to tear down all these, you know, all the bricks and the gold and the wood and everything, and he's going to build it back up? And what kind of construction crew does this guy have? Right? That's what they're asking. Right? What is Jesus talking about when he's talking about destroy this temple, 
and I'll lift it up in three days. What is he referring to? He's referring to his body, right? His body. So Jesus, we're told in John 1 and 2, he tabernacled among us and what? I'm the new temple. Okay? So Jesus, we're told by John, he is the new tabernacle. He is God with us, Emmanuel. And he is the new temple. That what? Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. It used to be the garden. Then it was the tabernacle. Then it was the temple. And now it's in a person, not a place. Jesus himself. That Jesus is now the way to be in the presence of God. Why? Because he is God. And where Jesus is, where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. That's where heaven is. That's why he says the kingdom is here. Why? Because I am the kingdom. I am heaven. So listen, I had to say all that to now set this up. Jesus says in John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. And what is that? Well, we always say, well, that's heaven, right? My father's house, that's where the father lives. That's heaven. But that's not the case in John. Again, don't I always say to you, context is king? I always say that. You have to know context of scripture. Because why? In John's gospel, the father's house is never referring to heaven. It always refers specifically to the temple. This is John chapter 2. He says in verse 16, look it up for yourself, in John chapter 2, he says he's in the temple, he is furious because they're selling things in the temple. And so what does he say? Stop, literally, stop turning my father's house into a market. Was he talking about heaven? No. This place up in the sky? No. He's talking about the temple. So in John's gospel... The Father's house is the temple. That's been established. And that's, by the way, why Jesus says that there are many rooms in the Father's house. Why? Well, Westerners, we think, well, there's going to be all these mansions in the sky. Well, this is what happens when we're not Jewish, right? We think that way. Every Jewish person will understand. They knew that in the temple itself, physically, there were a ton of rooms, countless. Why? Because people had to bring their tithes and their offerings and bring them in storehouses. And there had to be a lot of places for people to go and sleep, right? These storage rooms where people would stay. There are tons of them, countless rooms. And so now here's the big question. You ready? If that's true, father's house equals temple, then why, when we turn to John 14, do we make the Father's house heaven? It doesn't make sense. The Father's house is the temple. Not just in John, but again, in the rest of the scriptures. And who are we told in John is now the new temple? It's Jesus himself. So, what is Jesus actually saying as we open up John 14? He says, hey guys, I know what I just said that I'm about to go. I know I just said that Peter's about to betray me, but here's the thing, do not, here's some comfort for you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't, don't be anxious about the situation in front of you. No, instead, believe in me. Why, why? Here it is, because in me, the new temple Jesus, there is room for you. There's a place for you. It's so, this is so good when you get the gospel. I literally, I was writing this last night, this part. I got chills when I wrote it. It's, like, it's so good. The gospel's so good. You got to get this picture. This is the temple understood in a new way. The body of Christ is now the new temple. And Jesus is saying, if you believe in the Father and believe in me, there is room for you in me. 
There's room for you to be with me. To what? Make your dwelling with me forever. Abide with me is the word forever as I abide in you, which is, by the way, exactly what he's about to say in the rest of John 14 and John chapter 15. The context fits. And that's why we can have peace. Why? Not because we're going up to the mansion in the sky, deluxe apartment in the sky, right? As Jefferson said. No, because you're with me. That's why you can have peace. Because every single one of you in the room, there's room for you to be with me. That's what he's saying. Listen, when you understand what this passage is saying, do you see how it actually, it actually changes everything? Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And we think, oh, awesome, Jesus is going away to build me a mansion. Right? He's got this great living situation being prepared for me after I have a great retirement right, and die. Right? And, and by the way, we even have songs written about this, right? We do. Anyone remember Audio Adrenaline? few of you do. Audio Adrenaline. Some of us do. If you haven't heard of them, you're young. Okay, and that's a good thing. If you haven't heard of Audio Adrenaline, a lot of you have at least heard of their big hit song. It was one huge in all the youth camps. Big house. My father's house. Remember this song? It's all about John 14, right? I think, do we have it? Can we play it? You know it. You know, some of you are laughing. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard. It's this is America. We can play football. It's a big, big house. It's my father's house. You remember? This is it. This is it. We dance around, right? This is it. The jam, right? You remember. And we're all excited. Good stuff. Good stuff. I loved that song as a kid, right? Loved it. But here's the reality. It's not a good song. <laughs> it's not a very good song. And it's not just because it's corny, which it is, Okay? It's not a good song, actually. It's not a good song because of the message. There's actually, there's actually no gospel there. Actually, in that song about heaven, there's not even a mention of Jesus. But this is how we think of heaven. How a lot of us have grown up thinking about heaven. Jesus is going to go up there, and he's like the hired hand building me this big house. And whether he's there or not doesn't really matter because I'm going to have this great life with golden roads and big, big, I can play football up there and eat a lot of really good food. And whether or not he's there, why does it matter? Because I'm perfect and, right? There's no mention of Jesus. But yet that song is supposed to even be about heaven. And listen, if we're not careful, that's what we can make John John 14 out to be as well. Going up, going up, away to this place. And in that, we can so easily miss that the point of heaven, the the purpose of heaven, the focus of heaven in the scriptures is never, it is never about going to a place. It's actually never about being in a place. It's It's about being with a person. It's about being in his presence. It's about being with Jesus. It's about being in Christ, we'll find. Who, who is who? Who is the temple of God? See, the message of Scripture is we still go to the temple. It's just not a physical dwelling anymore. It's a physical person. I really want us to understand this today. Just let this sink in. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, So listen now, if Jesus is the temple, why then, because maybe some of you are saying, well, why then does he say that he's going to go? And more than that, then where is he going? Well, you already actually know the answer because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Where is Jesus going? 
Where has he just told the disciples he's going in John chapter 14? It came up right at the end. Jesus said to Peter and the disciples right before this, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Where is that? Where is Jesus going where they could not follow? Every scholar agrees with this point, by the way. He was telling them he's going to the cross. That yes, he is going back to the Father. Absolutely. That is true. But he is going back to the Father by way of the cross. And so now we are seeing in John 14 that this thread just continues. Jesus is repeating himself here. He's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why again? Because why? Because I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you. And what is he preparing? Well, by means of going to the cross, by resurrecting from the dead, and ascending back to the Father, he's making a way for us to be with God again to restore the relationship that was broken all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In a very real sense, Jesus here is saying to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I'm going to die for you. But understand what that means, that I'm going to make the garden experience possible again. That's what he's saying. The garden is going to be your reality again, where you can have access now and forever, to God's presence. You following me? This isn't Jesus talking about a construction project in heaven. Not at all. He's talking about going to the cross to prepare a place for us in himself. He's making a way for us to abide in him, to dwell in him as he dwells in us. That's the message today. Listen, if you believe in Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying. If you believe in the Father and believe in me, you have a place with me. There is room in me made possible by the cross, my death, and my resurrection. So let me pull this all, all together, and I'm going to put this on the screen. I hope this is really helpful for you. You might even want to, you could take a picture if you want. I'm not offended if you don't. But this is how I think we can and should read the passage. So there's like a paraphrase. So everything that's bold is actually the word of God. Everything that's not is not the word of God. So careful, okay? Going around saying, this is really what John 14 says. This is some commentary added in. But this is how I would read John 14 more appropriately. I would say it this way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, that is, in the temple of my body, are many rooms, for there is room for all in my body. If it were not so, would I have told you, to, told you that I go to the cross to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you on the cross, I will come again after my resurrection. And will take you to myself. I will make you and many others members of my body. That where I am, you may be also. You will be in me. Have full access to my presence by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe John 14 is trying to say. So again, what's the point in all this? Again, it's not meant to be Jesus giving them a lecture on the afterlife. He's simply trying to give them some words of comfort as a friend. There's some humanness to this. And so he says to them, I know that things are about to get really hard for you, really terrible even, but please understand, please understand that I'm going to prepare a place for you, meaning I'm about to go to the cross and die for you. So why? So that heaven and earth can overlap once again. I'm going to make it possible for you to be with me. God with man, just like in the garden, forever. So there's a lot there, okay? I know. <laughs> there's a lot to take in. There's probably even questions in the room. But this is the promise. Jesus will go to the cross to make a way for mankind to be with him. Okay? Well, we need to press on. Second, notice here, there is a path to his presence. There's a path to his presence. And this point is very, very quick. 
So we see here that the conversation shifts from the promise that there will be a way to be with Jesus to now the how. So Jesus says this, and you know the way to where I'm going. He says that because he's already told them, right? That's why he can say that. You already know where I'm going because I've told you a number of times. I'm going to the cross, but they miss it. They still can't comprehend what Jesus is doing or where he's going. And so Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, as I read that, I first thought I had was, it's a minor miracle here that a man asked for directions to begin with, right? Isn't it? I always thought that's a minor miracle. Okay, some of you will get that later. But men don't ask for directions, okay? <laughs> now he's asking. All right, we want to find our own way no matter what, even if we're lost. There's a lot of pride, okay? But Thomas asks the question, where are you going? How can we get there? And I'm really glad that he asked because if he didn't ask, then we don't get verse six. And verse six is key and central in many ways to all of John's gospel. Listen to these words. She said to them, and we know this, a lot of us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you, have, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. Jesus is going to the cross to make a way to himself, to make a way to God, making a way to experience his presence. He will do his part. He will be faithful to do his part, to accomplish his mission, and so what is our part? You go to the temple, the new temple. You go to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Doesn't it all make sense now? Access to experiencing paradise. Access to experiencing the garden. Access to experiencing heaven, if you will, comes through the Son, Jesus Christ, he says. Now, as much as we rejoice in this truth... And as much as it is straightforward, we all know that there are very few verses in our Bible that are more offensive in our pluralistic culture than John chapter 14, verse 6. Because Jesus here is declaring that he is the only way to God here, right? This is an exclusive claim. Listen, anyone can come, he's just said. So understand, anyone can come. There are many rooms in me, but the gate is narrow. There is one gate. There's one way, we say. And who of us hasn't been asked about this? If you've never received this question in your life, um, you probably haven't talked about Jesus much. You need to talk about him more with people around you. But people ask, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way? Have you heard that question? Received that question? You actually... As Christians, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way? And what do you say to that? Well, let me give you two proper responses from the text to answer that question. The first answer is yes, Jesus is the only way because why? He said so. <laughs> he said it plainly and he said it clearly. You see, this isn't really our claim. It's not my claim. This isn't, hey, Pastor jo James said today that Jesus is the only way. No. And it's not the Christian claim even. This is Jesus' claim. And we rally behind his claims as followers of Jesus. Jesus said this, I am the way. And no one, no one. And in the Greek, what does that no one mean? No one. That's what it means. No one comes to the Father except through me. And really what we see here, it's, it's been called many times through church history, it's called the threefold confession that we see here Jesus doing. The threefold confession. He's the way, he says. He's the way in that he is the way to God, or we see this in the Old Testament, that he's the road, the, the road or pathway to God. Through the cross and resurrection, we will see that, that union with the Father is possible. He is the truth in that he is the revelation of the Father. If you know me, he says, you know the Father. Jesus is the one who perfectly reveals to us the word and will of God. And Jesus is the life. He's the life. 
That's part of Jesus' confession here, that he is the embodiment of the life of the Father who is the one who gives us life. And this is exactly what Jesus told Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, just a few chapters before this, right? He says what? I am the resurrection and the life. So listen, everything we need to know about God is found in Jesus. Everything. Everything you need to know in this life about God, questions you have about God, are found in the person of Jesus Christ. These are Jesus' words to us. So, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to experience eternal life? To be with God? To experience his presence forever? I would say Yes. I think Jesus said that, and I'm with Jesus. Listen, we can't deny the words of Jesus because to deny his words is to deny Jesus himself. So as exclusive as this is, as harsh as it may seem, let's trust Christ, right? Let's trust his words. So some of you someday... You know, you'll get invited, you'll be a big shot and get invited to go on CNN news or whatever. You know what they do to Christians, right? You get the, every one of them is asked the question. Tell us, is Jesus the only way? Is everybody else going to experience eternal separation from God? They ask the question. What do you say? Jesus said that. I'm with Jesus. That's all I got to say. Okay? Don't dance around it. This is the truth. And to be honest, you know, I know it sounds shocking that there's only one way. But do you know what's much more shocking than Jesus being the only way? There's something much more shocking. What should put us on our face today in humility and gratitude is the fact that there even is a way to be with him. Amen? That's a way more shocking thing, that I have the ability to have access to the presence of God forever. That's way more shocking than there's one way. Praise God that we've been told there's a way. There's access to God's presence today through Jesus. By the way, if you're here today and you've never been told that, maybe there's someone here, we we want you to see this invitation that Jesus is giving. We want you to see it as Jesus comes to every troubled heart in the room. Maybe here in person, someone listening online, comes to every troubled heart and says, I am the way, come. Come, come abide in and with me. There are many rooms. There's space for you today with me. That's the first response I'd give to those who ask if I believe that Jesus is the only way. And then the second thing I would say as the text goes on is that we believe that's true, not just because Jesus said so, but we also believe it's true because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. See, in the next section here, verses 8 through 11, we see one of the disciples, Philip, raises this next issue. Look at it. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And to that, Jesus responds by essentially saying, I'm the unique son of God. (laughs) He's like, Philip, it's kind of, um, I'll I'll ironically use the word troubling. (laughs) It's kind of troubling that Philip even asked the question. And so Jesus is like, uh, Philip, you've been with me for like three years, man. Like, don't you already know me? Like, how long have we been together? How many of these lectures have you been at? How many times do I have to like, bread, bread, fish? Like, how, like come out of the tomb. Like, how, how many of these things do you need to see, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've told you that a couple times now. I just told you again. I've come from heaven to make a way for you, Philip. By the way, what, what, what religious leader has ever said that? Or better, which of them could ever say that? Right? Jesus is in a category all by himself. Right? Hear me, only the one who comes from God can take people to God, right? And so understand this claim of being the only way is now grounded in Jesus' identity And then in verse 9, Jesus just builds on this so beautifully. See what he says? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, Philip? And that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, 
which is, by the way, why he's the temple and why you're, when you're in Jesus, you're in God, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So again, this is what we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, isn't it? That it's his words and his works. This is whole, the point of all of John's Gospel. It's his words and his works that affirm his identity, that tell us that he truly is the Christ. It's, it's all that he, he said, all that Jesus said, but it's also all the miracles and the way that he lived his life that speak to Jesus being the only way. They testify that he is truly the unique son of God, that he is in a category by himself. So as we close this morning, when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, no one can come to the Father except through me, we understand it's because there's no one else in that category. There's no one else like Jesus. He truly stands alone. There is one mediator, we are told, between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, which is great news, by the way, for every single one of us here in this room, because Jesus says, as the way, as the truth, as the life, come to me. He says, as the new temple, I'm going to the cross for you. I'm going to the cross for your sins so that a restored relationship with me is possible. Listen, listen, from the very, very, very beginning, God's plan, his plan was the union of heaven and earth. We see that in the garden, God with us. And once that was severed, once it was broken, God's heart, his heart was to restore that again. That's why Jesus came. Heaven in the flesh. So that now in Christ Jesus, through believing in him, it's not just God with us. It's greater. It's God in us. We get to experience his presence forever. Listen, in Jesus, in Jesus, there are many rooms. In Jesus, there is a place for us. There is room for you today. Praise God. Praise God for this gospel. May we not just know it, but also experience it. The kingdom now. Experience the garden now. Experiencing heaven now. Because you can. Because you have Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for you.